Well, this morning we are going to be uh, looking again at the Trinity and, and trying to make progress on where we were at from last week. We began our study uh, of the Trinity last week with a, with a challenge to know the triune God, to understand God as he has revealed himself to be in the pages of Scripture. May we owe him the, the, the effort uh, to get to know him as he has revealed himself and that will enrich our worship of him. And our world, as we looked at some last week, our world has a tendency to shape God into their own image. And, and it's not surprising that the world does that and that liberal churches do that. But evangelicals also have a problem with making God into their own image, according to their own understanding. And, uh, and sometimes, with, particularly with those who are legitimately saved or genuinely saved, it's not that we intend to shape God in our own image, but our ignorance of God and, and our ignorance of the scriptures often causes us to distort the image of God and how we understand the image of God. The problem is that we are woefully ignorant about the Bible in general and particularly about God. While most self-described Christians believe in the Trinity, about 50% of them strongly or somewhat agree that Jesus is the first and created uh, being, the first, the, sorry, the first and greatest being created by God. Do, do you see a problem with that? You believe in the Trinity, but you believe Jesus is created. There's a disconnect right there. Uh, these people are completely oblivious to the fact that they're heretics. Holding to a heresy called Arianism, which the Council of Nicaea condemned in 325 A.D. It's not an old heresy. I mean, it is an old heresy. It's not something new. A third of evangelicals believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. How can you call yourself evangelical, but not believe that Jesus is God. Jesus was a great teacher. We don't argue that. But he wasn't merely that. More than a third of evangelicals, 36% 36 of those surveyed, think that the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. This shows us that while many claim a belief in the Trinity, they really have no idea what they're saying, what the Trinity means when they say that they do not adequately understand the Trinity, Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit. And many of these people are those who would claim to be evangelicals or self-described evangelicals in, in the survey. But we'd have to say, based on the results, it's likely that many of them are not even genuinely saved. And many of them would even struggle to define what the gospel is. We did a little survey even within our own congregation and and the, the results would be drastically different on, the, on those issues I just mentioned. But even within our own congregation, there is some confusion about the Trinity. A third of us think that the second person of the Trinity took on sonship to the Father at the Incarnation. And I, I intend to deal with that more in, in the, the message next week and try to help bring clarity to that. A third of us believe that there is a hierarchy within the Trinity, 50% of us think that the Father has authority over the Son, while the rest aren't sure or disagree. 20, 27% 20, 
think that the son has authority over the spirit, while 41% are not sure what to think about that. So our objective today, I bring these statistics to you just to show that, that there is confusion even within our own congregation about the Trinity. And so the goal today is to try to bring some, some clarity to the doctrine of the Trinity, to try to clear away some fog, if you will, regarding the Trinity. Remember that the Trinity in, in, in its fullness, in God's fullness, is something we will never understand. So what we're trying to understand is what's revealed to us in Scripture. And what's revealed in Scripture is something that we can understand. So our main quest is to know and worship God as Trinity because that's who He's revealed Himself to be. And he, so we must clearly understand that the key truths that the Bible teaches us about the Trinity so that we may, that we may worship God in truth and, and know which Trinitarian beliefs to hold to and which ones we need to reject. And, and turn away from. Now, the, as we mentioned last week, the place to know the Trinity is in the Scripture. So if you're taking notes, we're just going to look at the Trinity revealed. Uh, we're going we're gonna to look at the Trinity explained and Trinity clarified, and, and I'll go through those uh, one by one. But, but where do we go to see the Trinity revealed to us? And that's in the scriptures. And I'm just going to look at a few of the verses because I knew that you wouldn't want to be here until supper time. Uh, supper for me is six o'clock. So I know you wouldn't want to be here all day. So I've, I've selected out just some verses that talk about this. If you want to dig deeper into it, let me give you some resources. Um, pick up a copy of Essential Christian Doctrine. Essential Christian Doctrine. That is a systematic theology edited by John MacArthur. That's very helpful with going through every area, but it deals with the Trinity in particular. Then you could also, if you want to do a little bit more reading, you could pick up a little bit bigger book just on the Trinity, and that is The Essential Trinity, edited by Brandon Crow and Carl Truman. It goes by book by book of the Bible, showing where the Trinity is revealed to us, um, or sections of the Bible. That's a very good resource. And another one, if you don't want to spend any money, um, you could go to tms.edu at the Master Seminary. The seminary puts out a journal, and two issues of that journal in particular, fall of 2013 and spring of 2022, so just this year, these issues are dedicated to, to writing articles about the Trinity. So it'll help you go deeper in your understanding of the Word of God, more so than we have time even today. But those are excellent resources um, that will guide you um, correctly. So as we go to look at to the scriptures, to look for the Trinity, we first are going to go to the Old Testament. Now, if all we knew about God was the Old Testament, if that's all we had, then we would never know with any kind of confidence that the Trinity exists, that God is triune. Now, that doesn't mean that the doctrine of the Trinity contradicts anything in the Old Testament. But it just means that the doctrine of the Trinity is so subtle in the Old Testament that, that we wouldn't be able to, to know it, that doctrine like we do from the New Testament today. In fact, uh, the old scholar B.B. Warfield noted this. He said, none who have depended on the revelation embodied in the Old Testament alone have ever attained to the doctrine of the Trinity. So again, if you just look at the Trinity you're not going to come away with the doctrine of the Trinity, but using the lens of the New Testament, looking back into the Old Testament, we can see indications and intimations of the Trinity. 
And, and for the sake of time this morning, we're, we're going to look at the Old Testament texts that hint at, at the persons of God or relations within the Godhead. So there are many passages of Scripture that show that, that, that God is one and God's the only God. That's, that those are all throughout the Old Testament. So we won't touch on those this morning uh, dealing with the fact that God is one. So we're going to look at some Scriptures from the Old Testament that show a, a plurality, the plurality of God. We begin in Genesis. In Genesis 1.26, uh, the first part there, and, and I'm going to be mentioning uh, verses, uh, and you could turn to them. Some I'll have to mention quicker than you could probably get to them, but we can start in Genesis. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our likeness. Let us. Plural pronoun, but a singular verb. It's a very odd construction. Showing unity, plurality. Again, it's one of those verses we would go to through the lens of the New Testament to see that that supports the, the idea of a trinity. Um, in Genesis three twenty two, is another case like this. Here we see, then the Lord God said, or if you're using the, uh, um, a different translation, a legacy standard translation, It'll say, then, then Yahweh, then Yahweh said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So again, you see the plural pronouns are, are uh, indicative. I'm not sure what happened. So, sorry about that. So Genesis 22a and, and Genesis 1.26a show, show uh, these plural pronouns that, that there is a uh, plurality uh, to the Godhead. Uh, in fact, these scriptures are very interesting because it allows us to listen in on a conversation, an inter-Trinitarian conversation between the persons of God. Um, these revelations of God's plurality do not contradict the unity of God. So if you ever talk with a Muslim, they, they, and if they know, their, know a Bible, they may bring up the issue of, of Revelation, I mean, sorry, De Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, but know that the plural pronouns used in in Genesis, among other places, do not contradict the unity of God, which is re revealed in in the well known passage in Deuteronomy six four, the great Shema. I'll just read that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God; the Lord is one. Now, when it, when when the scriptures tell us that the Lord is one, it's not saying that that there aren't it's not contradicting any is that really saying anything about the the number of god it's talking about the the singularity in in the fact that god is the only one that israel is to worship uh, kevin zubner in one of the articles in the master seminary journal uh looking at old testament passages he said he said this to affirm that god is one is not to affirm is not to affirm that he is a singularity a monad uh, um, but Deuteronomy 6.4 is written to reinforce the truth that there is only one God. It says nothing about the persons. Uh, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament explains that the Deuteronomy 6.4 affirms that Yahweh is one, is the one and only God for Israel. Israel was commanded to worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone, God alone. They were, they were surrounded by nations that were engaged in all sorts of idolatry. All the, the various false gods 
The gods of the nations surrounded Israel and God was calling them to worship him and him alone and to be done with all of the false gods of Egypt and the false gods of the Philistines and the false gods of the Assyrians and everybody else around them. They were to worship God and God alone. Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting the Trinity, which is one I would highly recommend you pick up. There are some copies in the back if you're interested in that. Uh, delighting the Trinity, Michael Reeves, he said he underscores this point. He says the point of Deuteronomy six four is not to teach that the Lord our God, the Lord, is a mathemat- mathematical singularity. In the middle of Deuteronomy six, that would be a bit out of the blue to say the least. Instead, Deuteronomy six is about God's people having the Lord as the one object of their affections. He is the only one worthy of them, and they are to love Him alone with all their heart, soul, and strength. Unquote. So the New Testament gives us some intimations that there is a plurality to the Godhead. But the Old Testament also gives us scriptures that indicate there are relations within the Godhead. And you could say you can make a case even even um, those passages we looked at in Genesis. There seems to be that inter-Trinitarian relationship uh, kind of language going on. Um, for example, um, when we we talk about relations within within the Godhead, we see multiple appearances of the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. And what's interesting about these texts is that the angel, the angel of the Lord seems to be God and yet at the same time be sent from him. That's what the word the angel, the word angel means as a as a messenger, one sent. The angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar. Genesis 16, to Abraham, Genesis 22, to Moses, Exodus 3, to Israel as a, as a guide in many times in their history, Exodus 14 and 23, to Gideon and Judges 6, to the parents of Samson and Judges 13, to the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 1 and chapter 12. And it, that's not an exhaustive list, but it gives you an idea there are multiple appearances of the angel of the Lord. And these texts involving the angel Lord reveal to us something about the persons of God. Uh, Again, I just want to quote Kevin Zuber's uh, helpful comments. He said, these texts that refer to the angel Lord are unambiguous in revealing that this entity is God, the Lord himself. However, they also indicate that this angel is in some sense distinct from God, the Lord, unquote. So the appearances of the angel of the Lord not only reveal that 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 God is seen in some visible form, that the angel of the Lord is God, but also reveal to us that the angel of the Lord is sent from God. And through the lens of the New Testament, we rightly understand that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate appearances of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And Kevin Zuber also helpfully points out that the scriptures that reveal the Spirit of God uh, the Te- points out, I'm sorry, points out Old Testament scriptures that also reveal the the spirit of God um, to be a person distinct from the Lord, distinct from Yahweh. Right? In Genesis one two, we read, "The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters." Notice that phrase, "spirit of God." In Isaiah forty eight sixteen, there. God says to the prophet Isaiah, come near to me, listen to this from the first, from the first, I have not spoken in secret, 
from the time it took place, I was there, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. So the Lord sending his spirit, and indicative of the fact that the spirit is a separate person and yet God. Isaiah 63, 11. Then his people remembered the days of old of Moses. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? Uh, it was a time when, when Israel was facing uh, judgment and, and they're asking themselves, where is he? Where is God who put his Holy Spirit within them? Again, just recognizing the fact that the Holy Spirit is spoken as a, as a separate person of God. And then we can look at Psalm 104, verse, verses 29 and 30. Speaking of God, the psalmist said, You hide your face, they are dismayed. You, hot, you take away their spirit, they expire and return to the dust. Obviously, he's talking about, about men. Uh, he's talking to God, but about men. And then he says, you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So talking to God, talking about a sending forth of his spirit. And in, in addition to these, we could also point to Old Testament scriptures which speak of the servant of the Lord, the, the servant of the Lord text, as one sent from God and yet God himself. These are slightly different than the, than the text uh, speaking about the angel of the Lord. These are the servant of the Lord, the ones that would speak about the servant, the Messiah yet to come in Jesus Christ. And it, just to highlight one of these, I'll, I'll read Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. As Kevin Zuber comments, he says the remarkable feature with this text is the juxtaposition of the speaker, that is the one anointed, uh, the spirit, who in this case replaces the oil normally used for anointing, and the Lord who performs the act of anointing. I'll just read that to you again. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. So this is the Messiah. Speaking of the Messiah, and Jesus quotes this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. So you have the Messiah being anointed by the Holy Spirit, being sent of God. So these are just intimations from the Old Testament of the Trinity. And again, I'll just reiterate, if we had the Old Testament alone, we wouldn't get the full Doctrine of the de- of the of the Trinity, um, the our God has graciously given us more light of Himself in the New Testament. And before we move to the New Testament for support of the Trinity, I guess I just want to reinforce the importance of progressive revelation. That's the idea that that God didn't give us everything there is to know about Him or about the Messiah or about faith and salvation early on that that was revealed progressively through redemption history through redemptive history and and the illumination provided by the new testament helps us to see what is in the old testament for sure but it helps us to see that what was there is is previously just a shadow uh, again i just think that bb warfield is helpful in how he explains this and i'll, I'll just quote him here he says the old testament may be likened to a chamber Richly furnished, but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings out, brings out, brings out into clear view 
much of what is in it, but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation and here and there almost comes into view. Thus the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation which follows it, but only perfected, extended, and enlarged. And I really appreciate what he's saying there. He's saying what was written in the Old Testament is just, it's just dim, it's just a dim view of the Trinity. And the New Testament brings that out and develops that. It perfects the idea, extends the idea, enlarges the idea, but it never violates what is given to us in the Old Testament. That's a, uh, I guess a, a good hermeneutical principle to remember as you're thinking about how the Old Testament and the New Testament the Old and New Testaments relate and how to understand those passages of Scripture quoted in the New Testament that are um, of the Old Testament and, and how they, the New Testament authors use the Old Testament. So I'd like to pivot at this point and, and turn to the New Testament. The New Testament clearly affirms the Old Testament teaching that there is a plurality of the Godhead and yet only one God. And for the sake of time, like I did with the Old Testament, I'm going to limit the verses we look at to the verses that support God being a trinity. There are texts in the New Testament that speak of the Father as God. In John 6, 27, it says this, uh, Do not work for the food which perishes. This is Jesus talking to disciples, and not just the 12 disciples, but the disciples that, that followed him after he fed them lots of bread. John six twenty seven. he says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Listen to that last phrase. For on him the Father God has set his seal. So the, God, so the Father is clearly uh, indicated as being God. Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. Now may the God of perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 6, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6, we're told this through the Allah. The letter of the Apostle Paul, he says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, small g and small l on that, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So again, these are verse, just verses that clearly specify the Father is God. We can go to New Testament texts to speak of Jesus as God. And there are many of these, but we'll just point to a few of them. Uh, first, we'll turn to the Gospel of John. and John chapter 1, the very familiar prologue to the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? Clearly says that the word was God. The uh, Jehovah's Witnesses want to taint everything and translate that a God, but don't be fooled by that. That's bad Greek. 
right? The proper way to translate this is that he was God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it. And the word, verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word was God. And I read verse 14 to help us get the connection with the incarnation, that the word is Jesus Christ. So Jesus is spoken of as God. In Matthew one twenty-three, we read this, the angel that came to talk um, to Joseph said this, he says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means, they didn't want us to leave this in doubt, which translated means God with us. Right? So the, the angel who came to speak to Joseph is giving Jesus his name, Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus is God. In John 5 is, is a great treatise on on Jesus' claim to be God. If you ever meet someone that says, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, number one, just be assured they don't know their Bibles very well. And number two, take them to John 5. Five fingers from John 5. Just show the full deity of Christ, John 5. Um, we won't take time to look at all of it, but Jesus makes five different claims to be equal with the Father in this passage. Um, he, he is equal in his person, equal in his works, equal in his power, equal in his sovereignty. His, his power and sovereignty flow together. Equal in his judgment and equal in honor. Right? And for proof that that is what he is talking about, that Jesus is making that claim, we could just go to John 5.18. The Jews clearly understood what Jesus was saying. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, that was the minor thing. I mean, it was a major thing, but it was it was just a superficial thing. But he was also calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. They, they understood what Jesus' claims were. Then we could go to passages like Titus 2, which we looked at uh, recently in our study of Titus. Titus 2, verses 14, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Notice that phrase in Verse 13, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and the, the Greek grammar is worded there to indicate it's not talking about the Father and Jesus Christ. It's, it's that phrase, the grammar is calling Jesus Christ God, our great God and Savior. Both those designations point to Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is both Savior and our great God, or our great God and Savior. Second Peter, verse 1 uh Sorry, chapter 1, verse 1, 2 Peter 1, 1 says this, To those who have received the same kind of faith as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter does the same thing, same kind of grammar. Uh, so Jesus Christ is called our God and our Savior. 
Then we could go to New Testament texts to speak of the Spirit as God. There are fewer of these, but they still exist. Matthew uh, 3.16 talks about the Holy Spirit. We read it about the Holy Spirit, uh, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon Jesus at his baptism. Spirit of God. Romans 8.9. Paul says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So here it's it's really talking about um, the the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. But then he uses Paul changes the phrase again, talking about the same person, yet using a slightly different description. Instead of the spirit of God, calls it the spirit. He calls him the spirit of Christ. In Second Corinthians three, verses 15 to 18, we read this. Second Corinthians three, fifteen to eighteen. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Talking about Jews who even in Paul's day, but we could say even today, who read uh, the Mosaic law, who read the Torah, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the Lord the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. You're used to you're used to having Jesus called Lord. Here the text calls the Spirit Lord. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So very clearly the Spirit is called Lord, and uh, we looked at in, in some past lessons that the, the New Testament uses the word Lord as a translation for the Old Testament term Yahweh. So that's, that's something to keep in mind as you're studying the New Testament. It's not always that way, but you have to look at the context and see what they're, what the author is in, intending. And then we could turn to New Testament texts that speak of the three persons of God all, the, all at the same time. For example, in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel answered and said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So in describing to Mary how it is that she would bear a child while yet a virgin, the angel Gabriel provided a glimpse of all three persons of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, who is described as the Most High, and God the Son. Matthew three sixteen and 17. Again, just uh, we've referenced this before, but... But talking about the baptism of Jesus, it says, After having been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. And behold, there was a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that that same account uh, appears in Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. So it's reinforced for us. In, In this one passage, we see the the three distinct persons of God, all in the same uh, timing, appearing, working, um, manifesting themselves would be a better way to say that because you don't see the Father, we hear the Father. There's another passage I want you to turn to, and that's in Ephesians. It's a longer passage, so I'd like you to read along with me. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Now I'll read down to verse 14. And as we read through this, you're going to see 
the, the father is described, the son is described, the spirit is described, but notice also there are actions that are described. So a whole other study of this is noticing not only that, that the father, son, and Holy Spirit are all called God, but they all take on responsibilities and actions. They do work that are consistent with God, that only God can do. So I'll just, just read through that being in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the, of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory." Okay, so in this passage, we we see that that the that the Father is the one who elects, the Son redeems, and the Spirit seals. Right? They do more than that, but these are what's mentioned in this particular text. So we've looked at passages that clearly tell us that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and and we see them acting distinctly, and yet they also one God. So there is a, a clear doctrine of the Trinity that's that flows from the New Testament. And and remember what we, we the illustration that B.B. Warfield gave us of a of a room dimly lit. So that's the Trinity existed in the Old Testament, but the room is dim, dimly lit. As we move into the New Testament, it brings forth the light that reveals the doctrine in greater clarity for us. Now what I'd like to do is is to to try to bring some clarity to the doctrine of the Trinity by moving from the revelation of the Trinity to, to an explanation of it. And you might think, well, the sermon's going to get really long at this point. But we're going to go to some, some teachers of old for some help here. Um, I want us to dig a bit deeper regarding the knowledge of the Trinity. And, and we're not here going beyond the revelation of Scripture, but trying to make uh, or trying to more fully understand from the Scriptures the doctrine of the Trinity. Can we explain the Trinity beyond simply saying that God is three persons in one essence? Right? And I think the answer to that is yes. Um, and we're, to do that, we're going to get some help from what I call gifted teachers. So all of us have benefited from gifted teachers, um, men of God who have gone before us, who have understand the scriptures and are able to explain things, who are able to break things down into, into simple um, uh, statements for us. I remember... After I became a believer, and I'm not sure, I, I'm sure I didn't really know what God was doing in my life at the time. But as I was growing, 
God placed a pastor in my life who saw me growing, saw my hunger to grow, and he gave me guidance just to, uh, to read commentaries from about four or five different men. And he said, the others just ignore right now. Just read. If you want to learn the scriptures, read. Learn from these four or five men. And I'm so thankful he did that because what he did is he, he set an appetite for solid doctrine. He set me on the path of solid doctrine. The others I could work out later. And he really kept helped me keep he helped keep me on the path of truth and avoiding uh, paths that would lead me astray. And I'm sure that in your own testimonies, you know men um, and sometimes even women who have helped you understand the scriptures. Um, uh, like, for example, your mom teaching you the scriptures that, that help set you on the path of, of truth. So in our quest to, to understand the Trinity, I want us to seek the help of faithful pastors who have thought deeply about the Trinity. And, and to, to uh, access these pastors, we have to do some quasi-time travel. I won't ask you to move out of your seat. But we're going to go all the way back in history to the early part of the church. Uh, beyond the new, beyond the New Testament church, we're going to go back nearly a thousand years before the Reformation and seek help and understand the Trinity, Trinity from what's called the Athanasian Creed, and that is on your chair and on a sheet next to you, the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed was probably written somewhere between 300 and 600 A.D., and it was uh, written in Latin later translated to Greek and then to English. Uh, it is a statement of orthodoxy concerning the Trinity and the Incarnation. The statement mentions the, the Catholic faith, but understand it's not talking about the Roman Catholic faith. It's talking about Catholic faith in the sense of universal. The word Catholic means universal. It's the universal Christian faith. Um, J.F. J. F. Johnson, in, in talking about this, he, he notes that, that the... There, let me preface this before I quote him. This Athanasian Creed is a creed that was widely accepted by Christians at the time and by Christians after that, even all the way up to the Reformation. The Reformation, Luther and Calvin, Zwingli, they challenged a lot of things, but they didn't challenge the doctrine of the Trinity as it had been laid out for hundreds of years prior to them. And J.F. Johnson notes that both the Lutheran and Calvinistic elements of the Reformation accepted the Athanasian Creed. It was accepted because the Reformer saw it as biblical. So that's why, I'm, that's why I'm mentioning all this, that this creed, not all creeds are good, but this creed is a helpful guide to us in understanding the, the Trinity. Now, the Johnson also helpfully explains that structurally the creed is composed of 40 carefully modeled clauses or verses, each containing a distinct proposition these clauses are divided into two clearly demarcated sections. The first sections on the doctrine of God as Trinity. The second section of the Athanasian Creed expresses the church's faith in the incarnation by affirming the doctrinal conclusions reached in the controversies regarding the divinity and humanity of Jesus. So the Athanasian Creed was written to defend an orthodox view of the Trinity and an orthodox view of the Incarnation. So it deals with those two topics. And as we read through this, you will see that. And the reason that they're dealing with this is because the Trinity is a bit of a paradox. How can you have one God, three persons? 
The how is something I can't answer. That's why it's a paradox. We simply know that it's true. There is one God and three persons. And yet some people not satisfied with that have tried to explain the how. And they end up with some kind of heresy. And so the Athanasian Creed was, was written to try to defend the truth, but they don't deal with the paradox. They acknowledge the paradox, but they don't try to explain the how. And, and Johnson again affirms, he says, the paradox of the unity and trinity of God in the face of modalism, which attempted to solve the paradox by insisting on the unity while reducing the trinity to mere successive appearances, and the Arians, who tried to resolve the difficulty by rejecting a unity of essence by dividing the divine substance, unquote. So there are people who tried to deal with the paradox either by, by what's called modalism, that is saying there's one God and he only appears as the persons every once in a while. Right? That is heresy. That is not true. Then there's the Arians who, who saw that, that they tried to deal with the uh, paradox by rejecting the unity of God and seeing almost like various, various gods. In fact, they would look at Jesus as a demigod and not as God himself. Right? And that's the era of the Jehovah's Witnesses today, among other things. Now, the, the creed, Johnson notes that the creed does not hesitate to affirm a doctrine in which human experience, um, the human experience of the Trinity is paradoxical. That in the incarnation, there was a union of two distinctly different natures, the divine and the human, each complete in itself without either losing its identity. And yet the result of this union is a single person. And the creed thus repudiates the teachings that Christ had but one nature, Sabellianism, or that Human nature was incomplete, Apollinarianism, or the divine nature was inferior to the Father, Arianism, or that the in the union of the two natures, the identity of one was lost, so that the result was simply one nature. That's Eutychism. Now, we're not dealing with the incarnation today, but I just wanted to, to, to read that because the statement, the Athanasian Creed, does deal with that. So as we read this statement, uh, just see it as us going to help from teachers of old who had to do a lot of, there's a lot of study and discussions because the Trinity was under severe attack. And so it's a, it's a statement that helps us understand the Trinity. So I'm just going to read these to you without comment, or we'll be here too long, because there's 40 of these statements. But let's just go through this. Right? And this comes from Philip uh, Schaff's translation of the Athanasian Creed in his uh, Books of History. Whosoever will be saved, before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith, that is, a universal Christian faith, which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost, but the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, by, by meaning he's infinite. The Son incomprehensible, the Holy Ghost incomprehensible the Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Ghost eternal, and yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. 
as also there are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensibles, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise the Father is Almighty, the Son is Almighty, and the Holy Ghost Almighty. And yet there are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord. And yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to say, that is the universal Christian religion, to say, there be three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghost. And in this Trinity, none is afore or after another. None is greater or less than another. There is nothing before or after, nothing greater or less. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as foresaid, the unity in Trinity and Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, God of the, of the substance, that is, of the essence of the Father, begotten before the worlds of man and of the substance of his mother born in the world, perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God. Speaking of the incarnation there. One altogether, not by confusion of substance at his essence, but by unity of person, for as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sitteth on the right hand of the Father God Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, at whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies and shall give an account for their works, and they shall have done good. They and they that have done good shall go into everlast into life everlasting, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the Catholic faith, which, except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. Now there's so much packed into that, but I, the reason I gave you that is so that you could take it home and and read it and think through what they are saying. Right? They don't explain. The why. Remember I told you there's no explanation to tell you how God is one and three. So the how is a mystery. That's the paradox. But the facts that they are um, 
that God is one and there are three persons of the Godhead are very, very clear from Scripture. And if you keep these things in in your head, it'll help you think through other issues and other questions that might come up, particularly as we deal with the humanity of Christ. And I and I'll, uh, next week we'll explain more, uh, uh, go into more depth about that. What I would like to do at the moment is just kind of pivot and take what we've learned from the from the New Te- Old Testament, New Testament, from the Athanasian Creed, and just kind of boil it all down into a point I'll call the Trinity summarized. Looked at the Trinity revealed, the Trinity explained, uh, and the Trinity summarized. So as pastors and theologians studied the Trinity from the Old and New Testaments and, and developed these, the, the Athanasian Creed is just but one. The Athanasian Creed is built on the Nicene Creed, which you may have heard of that as well. Um, they can boil down the statements uh, to seven key statements about the Trinity. And I'll just read these to you. And I'll give them to you twice in case you're taking notes. I can always send them to you by email if you want me to do that. The Father is God. Secondly, the Son is God. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is God. Fourth, the Father is not the Son. Fifth, the Father is not the Spirit. Sixth, the Son is not the Spirit. Seven, there is exactly one God. So the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. And the Son is not the Spirit. There is exactly one God. Seven statements. Seven clear, short statements. After all the long things I read to you, um, it's good to have some kind of summary. Now, there's more to be said about the Trinity than that. But these seven statements are very, very helpful. Uh, Some discussions concerning the Trinity can be complex and confusing at times. Some passages of Scripture you're going, to have to, you're going to have to study carefully to know what's going on there. But let these seven summary statements about the Trinity act like guardrails for you. You know, have you ever been on a, on a mountainous road where you got really nice grand views of, the, of whatever it might be on the West Coast? You might have the Pacific Ocean you're seeing and some places in Colorado, it might be just a nice vistas of, of other mountains. But I'm always very glad when there's a guardrail there, right? Just in case. Or, or there's a, um, you know, some of the overlooks at the uh, Grand Canyon. You know, you've got one of the, one of the overlooks um, that is, uh, goes out 70 feet down over the Grand Canyon. And you're just walking on glass and you can see all the way down. But you wouldn't probably want to go on that if there weren't guardrails. Especially if you had kids, you definitely would not want to do that. But I guess the point of all that is, while taking in the beauty of the Grand Canyon of the mountains, the guardrails become a help to us. Right? So these seven clarifying statements function like guardrails as you think about the Trinity. So as you think about more complex things, don't violate these seven principles. It'll help you think through things. Like we think through, does the Father have authority over the Son? Or does the Son have authority over the Spirit? Or you know, do I pray to the Father? Or do I pray to the Son? Or do I pray to the Spirit? We'll deal with some of these things more next week. But these seven statements should guide how we, these seven clear statements should help guide how we think about more complex things. Right? These seven statements are true eternally and are good characterization of the Trinity. We worship God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Right? Where there's not a confounding or mixing of the persons there's, and there's a distinction. 
between them, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet they're one God. Undivided, equal in power, equal in glory, equal in majesty. The Father, Son, and Spirit are eternal. Uh, just Let me just give you a summary of the statement of the Trinity from our own doctrinal statement. We teach that there is but one living and true God, an infinite all-knowing Spirit, perfect in all His attributes, one in essence, eternally existing, in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each equally deserving worship and obedience. Now, the Athanasian Creed says that you, they would argue that you have to believe all those details about the Trinity and the Incarnation to be saved. Understand that God often saves people without understanding the Trinity. So that's where I would make a slight distinction. You, I would doubt anybody could be saved without turning to Christ as as God. So understand that. But you may not understand the Trinity. That doesn't mean you're not saved. Where the danger lies, if you reject the Trinity, if you're rejecting the truth, that's where I'd say you may not be saved if you're rejecting the Trinity. If you've been exposed and to the to the the teachings of Scripture about the Trinity and reject those teachings, then I would have serious questions about whether you're truly saved or not. But someone could be a, a baby Christian and not really understand the Trinity, and they could be genuinely saved without knowing all those details. Right? So that's why I'll give you a little clarity with the Athanasian Creed. Remember what we're trying to do here, trying to learn more about the Trinity. And, and as we draw closer to God in our knowledge of Him, I want that to fuel a greater desire to know him and and I pray for you in in that way that you would want to know God and maybe some of you here this morning don't don't even know God you're here because someone brought you here or your parents drug you here or you know you, you you're not sure where you stand with God whether you're even saved or in the kingdom of God know that this triune God who is going to judge all sinners we read about it from Revelation 14 he's going to judge all sinners He is the same God who saves if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he died for your sins and he was buried and that three days later he was raised from the dead in newness of life to forgive sins. And he sits at the right hand of the Father now, right, building his church and awaiting the time when he will return as judge and return as king and Lord. For those who are believers, let what we've learned draw you in closer to God. Pray that God would help you to to know him better, but never be satisfied with with knowing with what you know of him, that you'd want to know of him more, which would drive you to the scriptures. In closing, I I want to quote uh, from a pastor of old, Gregory of uh, Nassanus, who lived around 330 to 390 A.D., he was called the theologian by the Eastern Church, and he taught much on the Trinity. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Let me uh, just read. Let's listen to his how he speaks about the Trinity. This I give you to share and to defend all your life. The one Godhead and power found in the three in unity and comprising the three separately, not unequal in substances or natures, neither increased nor diminished by superiorities or inferiorities, in every respect equal, in every respect the same, 
just as the beauty and the greatness of the heaven is one. The infinite conjunction of three infinite ones, each God when considered in himself, as the Father, so the Son, as the Son, so the Holy Spirit, the three, the three, one God. When contemplated together, each God because consubstantial, one God because of the monarchia, meaning the, the monarchy of God, the kingdom of God, no sooner do I conceive of the one that I am illumined by the splendor of the three. Let me read that again. Think about that. No sooner do I conceive of the one that I am illuminated or illumined by the, by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them that I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as a whole and my eyes are filled and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch, and I cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. You ever feel like that? Do you think about the Trinity? You think about the three, you're carried back to the one. You think about the one, you're carried back to the three. And here is a man who's very learned saying that what he was thinking escapes him and the, and the greatness uh, is is so great. The greatness of God is so great that it overwhelms me. Cannot cannot comprehend all there is to comprehend about God. But but think about that. The greatness of God. As you think about the one God, think about the three. And as you contemplate the work and ministry of the three, think about the one God. Allow your thoughts to go back and forth like that in perfect harmony with the scriptures of who God has revealed Himself to be. Let's pray together. Our triune God, we are, are just uh, really just touching the surface of the things there are to know about you, digging into the scriptures about who you are as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet one God. Lord, help us to, to better understand you and to see how the triunity of God impacts our everyday lives. This isn't just a dry, stodgy doctrine, a doctrine of the Trinity. You are a loving God, and you love us immensely and have done so much for us as your children in rescuing us and turning us away from the, the wrath of God which we justly deserve, that we might experience the love of God and the grace of God, the transformation of God. As we think about what you've done in our lives, help us to see the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Holy Spirit, and yet to see you as our one true God, Redeemer, Savior, Shepherd. Lord, help us to live for you in these very uh, troubling times, but to live joyously for you as believers who walk in the light. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.